and welcome to episode two of series seven of State of Mind podcast with me, nutritional therapist Grace Kingswell. That was weird saying my own name. Anyway, today I have a fantastic guest for you, Dr. Jenny Goodman, author of the book Staying Alive in Toxic Times. But quickly, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is kindly being sponsored by Key Kefir. Key make kefir from cows that graze on organic and regenerative pastures only. And I'm going to tell you more about them later on in the episode. Now on to today's episode with Dr. Jenny Goodman. Jenny started her career as a medical doctor, but became completely disillusioned with the methodology of purely treating symptoms and not offering any preventative medicine. She then found ecological medicine, which is very similar to functional medicine and nutritional therapy, where we look at the body as one whole system and try and get to the root cause. Her book, Staying Alive in Toxic Times, is a manual for 21st century living, divided up into four seasons to cover off seasonal eating, the types of toxins that are most prevalent at certain times of year, for example, early autumn for mold, FYI, that's now, and also contains loads of really fascinating case studies from her own clinical experience. We cover sunscreen and the dangers of chemical sunscreen in this episode, why grounding is actually just pure science and not hocus pocus, organic food and agriculture, mold and light, among many other topics. It's a truly fantastic listen and thank you so much to Jenny for coming on the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. You can find Jenny via her Instagram at Dr underscore Jenny underscore Goodman and her website drjennygoodman.com. So on with the episode. Okay, and I am live with Dr Jenny Goodman. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well and it's very good to meet you. So we are going to be talking today all about your new book, Staying Alive in Toxic Times. Fantastic title, by the way. Um, I absolutely love that. And not so much just about the book, but talking around all the subject matter within it. And I, I really feel like it is, it's a manual for 21st century living, isn't it? It's a, this is what we're up against and this is what you can do about it, essentially. Yeah. That's a very good summary. Yep, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yes. And why did you feel particularly that you had to write this book? Okay, so the need grew over many, many years of working with patients doing ecological medicine. And I can explain what that is in a minute. Lots and lots of patients said to me, I am so much better. You have got to write down how you do this. And it's not just me, of course, it's all the practicing ecological physicians. Mm. Um, and people will always say, why didn't my GP know all this? You know, a year or two, somebody comes very ill. You do simple nutritional and environmental measures. They get better. And the question always is, why doesn't my GP know all this? Mm. So I've written the book so that both the general public and patients and doctors, those who are interested and can find the time, will basically be able to learn what I've learned, what all my colleagues in the British Society for Ecological Medicine have learned um, and what my patients have learned, not only about how to get better, but how to not get ill in the first place mm. and about how the way we're living is making us sick. And most of it is in our hands to change and control. So it's about nutrition, the good stuff we need and which we may be desperately lacking for lots of reasons. And the bad stuff we don't need, which is getting into us from our polluted environment, 
how to prevent that, how to identify and avoid those toxins, but also how to get them out of your system in a safe and effective way once they're in there. So yeah. the reason we call this ecological medicine is, is two reasons. One is it treats the whole body as one joined up ecosystem. Now, your lungs are not separate from your skin, which is not separate from your gut, which is affecting your joints, right? So where a person could have been to half a dozen different hospital specialists for the different bits of them that are going wrong, ecological medicine says, look, your body's one ecosystem. Let's be joined up about this. Let's see what's the good stuff you're missing and the bad stuff that's inside you that could be triggering all these responses in all the different parts of your body and indeed mind. Mm. And the other sense in which it's ecological medicine is that it sees the body as inextricably linked to the planet that we live on. So, you know, the soil in which we grow our food, what's in there, what's missing from there, the water, what's in the water, the air we breathe and everything we touch. Um, we are not separate from that. We're not separate from the rocks and the earth and the animals and the plants. And so it's ecological medicine in that sense, too. And I wanted the world to know it because we've learned so many ways that are safe and simple and effective for staying well and getting well. And, you know, I am still shocked, as all my patients are, about the extent to which that knowledge is not out there. I learned none of this in medical school. You know, in medical school, bless them, they taught me a long list of illnesses and what drugs to use for each of them. Mm. There was no inquiring. How come this happened to the body? Because the body should heal itself. Yeah. So so you were a medical doctor, Jenny. What Indeed. was it that, or was it kind of a slow progression? Maybe it wasn't one thing that kind of, you know, really shifted your focus and completely changed the way you practice and obviously you then went on to do further qualifications in ecological medicine which from what I can gather is very and listeners will be very um very uh aware of the term nutritional therapy because I am a nutritional therapist from what I can gather it's very similar it is that plus another half right Mm. so it's absolutely about nutrition um and the good nutrients the vitamins and the minerals and essential fatty acids which can be missing even if you eat a really good diet Mm. because the soil has been so depleted by intensive farming that, for example, your your portion of broccoli will contain vastly less calcium and magnesium than it did 50 years ago Mm. because the food can only contain what's there in the earth. So, you know, that's one of the things we've learned about nutrition. But the other half of ecological medicine, in addition to nutrition, which is putting, putting the good stuff back in, is environmental medicine, looking at the pollution, the heavy metals, the toxins, the chlorine, the fluoride, whatever, which has got into us from our ordinary everyday environment, whether it's urban or rural, Mm. how to identify those, how to see how they're making us ill, how to remove them safely from the system with proper detoxification, helping the liver to do its job, and how to avoid becoming contaminated again. So that's the other half, yeah. the environmental as well as the nutritional side. So that's, yeah, it's interesting because I feel all, all nutritional therapists, good, good nutritional therapists that I know of do both those things and more. And I feel like that's where the confusion between what a nutritional therapist is and what a, a nutritionist is. 
that that's kind of the confusion because I think people box them into the same category when a nutritionist is just going to look at that that diet and a nutritional therapist is as you say treating the body as a whole with uh, interconnected systems and and connected to its environment as well that's right and a good naturopath is doing that as well and a good herbalist is doing that as well and you cannot separate the nutritional side from the environmental side so Mm. i'll give you an example i've had a brilliant nutritional therapist sitting in with me on my consultations And they will ask me questions like, for example, this lady was really deficient in zinc and it was causing lots of symptoms. And I've been giving her zinc for a year, really high doses, liquid form. So it's easily absorbed. But her zinc level isn't going up when I measure it. That tells me something is competing with the zinc and pushing it out. Mm. Now, it could be excess copper if somebody's on the pill or has a coil, but it could also be toxic heavy metals like cadmium from cigarette smoke it could be somebody else's cigarette smoke could be nickel which is all around us and of course in the book I explain what the sources of these toxins are so you know how to avoid them and it could be mercury from fillings but until you've identified and dealt with that toxic metal you're never going to get the levels of the good minerals like zinc to be normal yeah but conversely conversely if you start off with a good zinc level you'll absorb fewer of the toxic metals And if you have got toxic metals on board, you will need far more of the good minerals like magnesium and zinc than you would otherwise, because you're not just using them nutritionally. You're using them as medicines to push the bad stuff out. Mm, Yeah, totally. Now, because I got very um, excited and and flustered with my questioning and I asked you two questions in one, we didn't really touch on that point of what was it that shifted your whole focus to ecological medicine from the conventional orthodox practice. Okay. So thank you for bringing me back to that question. So at the end of the first year of medical school, I asked one of my lecturers what the biochemistry was for. And they said, oh, nothing really. You won't need it unless you become a metabolic specialist. It's about rare genetic diseases. Okay. I've learned since that everything we do in nutrition yeah. is applied <laughs> biochemistry. It is simply yes applied biochemistry and the assumption was that every biochemical process happens in an identical fashion in every person we now know in nutritional and ecological medicine from genetic testing that that actually is different for everyone which is why some of us need for example a huge amount of b12 in a particular form and others can manage on hardly any so that was one thing it made no sense to me that i'd spent a year learning fascinating biochemistry and that it was going to be useless Then when I got onto the wards in the third, fourth and fifth year of the training and in my first junior doctor year, I was completely astounded that everybody we saw, every patient we saw was an emergency, was seriously ill, had been developing their heart disease or their cancer or their crippling arthritis for years or for decades. There had been no intervention at any point until they came into the hospital And every single time on a ward round, I would ask the consultants the question, why? Why has this person got cancer? Why have they got heart disease? Why? I was blanked. It was ignored. It was a non-question. It was taboo. And in the end, I was told to stop asking why, because as clinicians, our job was simply to treat. And treat didn't mean to get alongside the body to help the immune system battle the illness. It meant giving drugs whose names always began with the prefix anti. Anti-epileptics, antidepressants, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, fight, fight, fight. 
And I knew it was wrong. And I also saw what I experienced as butchery in gynecology and in obstetrics. It's a little better now, but in the 1980s, obstetrics particularly was very brutal. And psychiatry was appalling. It was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That has improved to a great extent. But what I saw was not healing. Uh, What I saw was very, very crude and not really making people better. And of course, in many instances with drug therapy, making people worse. Interestingly, the only department I felt at home with was, I felt at home in, was casualty, as we called it then, the accident and emergency department. Because then I knew that everything I was doing for the patient was right. And I felt ethically content. You know, if you've Mm. split your head open, you need it sewn up. You know, if, if something's exploded in your abdomen, you do need an operation. But other than that, I felt, well, the word healing was taboo. We were not making people better and we were not inquiring about why they had become ill in the first place. Mm. So I knew I wanted to do preventive medicine and I knew I wanted to do healing or even cure. Cure was another word that was taboo rather than what they described themselves as doing, which was the management of symptoms. Mm. Wow, that is so illuminating, isn't it? And and how did you find the British Society of Ecological Medicine? And is that something that is, because I know there'll be people listening to this podcast thinking, that sounds fascinating. I could do that. I could, I could, you know, train in what Jenny's doing. Is that only available to um, doctors? It's not only available to doctors, right? I was incredibly lucky to discover the British Society for Ecological Medicine back in 1999. Uh, it was a fluke. It was chance. And suddenly I was in a conference in a room full of doctors who were asking all the questions I'd been asking throughout medical school, but they were actually finding answers. And they, mostly GPs who'd become very tired of dishing out all the anti-drugs. So that felt like coming home. I was very lucky. They were starting the two-year training. And then it was a postgrad training for doctors only at the beginning of the 2000s. And, you know, it was synchronous. It was serendipity. I did that training and I sat in with many of the very senior practitioners. And I learned in that way. And now, of course, I have many, many people sitting in with me. Now, there is an American equivalent called functional medicine, which is over here now. It is very similar. um, And their trainings are absolutely brilliant, prohibitively expensive. And they haven't got the clinical sitting in with colleagues aspect, which you need. They're very, very good. But the Institute for Functional Medicine, you know, it is a commercial outfit and the British Society for Ecological Medicine is a charity. Um, We are educating the doctors of tomorrow and nutritional therapists, naturopaths, herbalists all come along as well. Uh, Dentists as well. We even have some vets and farmers involved because these things are so linked up. Um, But, you know, there are also very good places to do a full training, such as you know, CNM, the College of Naturopathic Mm -hmm. Medicine, ION, where I've taught many times, the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. And about four or five years ago, ION started bringing me in to talk about the toxicological half of what we do. And that's more and more now being incorporated into their trainings. Mm -hmm. So the BSEM cannot provide, you know, a full-time training, but they've got some fantastic add-on seminars and conferences once you've done the basics. Nice. Uh, And I feel very blessed to have found all these wonderful colleagues. 
Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So let's dive into uh, the book then. So it's set out um, fascinatingly, I think, in seasons. So each each chapter is a season, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Um, and we we kind of go through those seasons and you and you talk to us about, you know, this is this is the what what's dangering us at this time and here's what you can do about it. So seasonally speaking then, when are we in more danger from our environment? Um, and when are we conversely not? Yeah. I mean, first, I should clarify that this isn't all about danger. Um, A lot of the point of the first four chapters being seasonal was simply to talk about food and eating what's in season and helping people get back in touch with the cycles of the year Mm -hmm. and the way we need to eat differently and also live differently at the different times of the year. So, you know, if you've got a job where you have to get up at five in the morning, it's really not a problem in June. It is a serious problem in December. So it's about living with a light, being outdoors and much more active in the summer and indoors and semi-hibernating in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of hazards, um, I would say that the problem in winter is we keep our windows closed. And there we are. Therefore, we're much more exposed to indoor pollution. And because people are less aware of the indoor pollution, I do explain in the book that Flame retardants, which contain toxic bromine, have to, by law, be put into our soft furnishings like sofas and curtains and carpets and even mattresses if they're made of synthetic material because it's flammable. Mm. Interestingly, natural material like wool and linen and cotton don't need fire retardants added because they're naturally fire resistant. But if you're buying these synthetic soft furnishings and, you know, they're not organic and then you've got you buy them in November and you've got your windows closed for the next three or four months, you are breathing in the flame retardants such as polybrominated biphenyls. And you are breathing in the chemicals from whatever you keep in the cupboard under your sink in your kitchen and your bathroom. So if you're using air freshener and stain removers and synthetic polishes and disinfectants and oven cleaners and there are totally natural replacements for all of these which you can make or buy very cheaply Um, they're in my book and they're in more detail in a book called cleaning yourself to death by pat thomas so if you're unaware of all this and you're using all these chemicals in the winter with your windows shut that i would say is hazardous Mm. the the other thing i think that's that's you know less known much less known is autumn mold mold in early autumn now this is a hazard of our british climate if you go 600 miles south so you're in southern europe you're in the mediterranean you're in northern africa it's so dry that molds can't grow molds are not a hazard there they're also not so much of a hazard at the top of a mountain in switzerland in the middle of the summer But we have a damp climate. And because we also have a cold climate, we insulate. You know, we insulate our houses. We have double glazing. We make sure there's no leaks. But what that means is that molds will grow, particularly where the wall meets the ceiling at the top of the house. Because what we're doing is breathing out water vapour. We're exhaling. We're showering. We're having a bath. We're cooking. So naturally, all that water vapour gets trapped. And the better insulated your house is, the more it get tra- gets trapped. So this is ironic and it's a problem because in 99% of situations, what's good for the planet is good for the person. 
But here we have a problem because if you want to make sure no mold grows in your house and mold is just as toxic as synthetic chemicals, then you have to open the windows and turn the heating on. Now, plant trees to make up for the carbon footprint, and I do that, I take that very seriously. But if you have the heating on, if necessary, if it's winter, and you have the windows open, then you've got air circulating and you're replicating in so far as you can the hot, dry climate of the Mediterranean where moulds can't grow. Mm-hmm. So although moulds are living creatures, it is an unnatural situation we've created for them to thrive, which is living in a far north cold climate and keeping everything shut. Um, so, yeah, we, we need ventilation in the winter, even if that means you put the heating on and you plant trees with charity like the Woodland Trust or Trees for Life in the Cairngorms in Scotland, where they're recreating the original deciduous forest. Mm. Yeah, I think that will resonate with with people, won't it? Because instinctively, we all feel better in the summer months. And I think a lot of the time we attribute that to the sunshine. Um, But actually, yes, it is the sunshine. Yes, it is that amazing vitamin D. But it's also we are outside so much more. And um, anyone that follows me on Instagram, as as all listeners of this podcast do, thank you very much, will know that mold is something I talk about a lot. I've done a dedicated podcast episode on mold and mycotoxins. So if you haven't listened to that and this has piqued your interest, then do go back and listen to it. Um, and just for perspective, I we have a dehumidifier. I think Cornwall is probably one of the worst places for mold because it's so wet and damp. Um, and we've got also the sea wind that then drives that moisture through the render. And mm. our dehumidifier pulls five litres of water from the air every single day. Wow. And that is a hell of a lot. So, yes, really, really interesting. So summer and and spring then, typically, are they sort of in terms of toxin levels um, on the lower end? Um, In terms of toxins, to be honest, I can't say. But in terms of nutrition, early spring is hazardous because it's very hard to eat seasonally because it's what farmers call the hungry gap. Right. There's almost no fruit and vegetables that grows naturally in this country um, in early spring, because mm. by the end of the winter, you've used up all the winter veg. You've used up all the you know, the winter cabbage and the potatoes and so on. You have to get imported stuff, um, which is flying it across the planet and doing us harm. So what I strongly suggest is that by the end of February, everybody's got salad growing on their windowsill. You know, you just plant it, um, you know, either you sprout the seedlings with no earth at all, or you get a little tray of organic compost and you sprout your salad. And that gives you the nutrition you need to get you through from end of winter to, let's say, late April. Mm-hmm. And then from, from May to September, the key thing is to get outdoors. In fact, all the year round, you need to get outdoors when it's daylight, because the outside is good for us in three or four different ways. First of all, the sunshine makes vitamin D in the skin, but it can only do that if you expose enough skin to it. The face and hands are not enough. You know, you get out there in May and you roll your sleeves up and you wear shorts or a short skirt. And as soon as it's warm enough to do that, get the sun on your skin while it's still a gentle sun so that you build up a tan that protects you from damage and that you make that vitamin D in your skin. And people should know that the way the body does it is by turning cholesterol into vitamin D. If you want 
to lower your cholesterol, just sunbathe. And in the summer chapter, I have a whole spiel about, oh, but won't we get skin cancer? Well, no, you won't if you do it properly. Mm. And I go through all the evidence about how to be safe in the sun without putting toxic sunscreens on your skin, which get absorbed into the system. Yeah. The other way, another way in which being outside is brilliant for us is being barefoot on the grass. If you are barefoot on the grass, then you are literally in tune with the electromagnetic field of the earth, the planet we evolved in. And this is not new age wifty hippie nonsense. This is physics. This is A-level physics. And we are evolved to be literally physically in touch with the earth and therefore the electromagnetic field. Mm. So barefoot on the grass, you know, hug the trees if it hasn't been pouring with rain um, and it literally grounds you. And of course, if you go out into the middle of the park or the woods or the fields, you are not only away from chemical pollution, you are away from electromagnetic pollution, which is the radiation given off by phones and Wi-Fi and mobile phone masts, 4G, 5G, all of that. The third, third most fundamental way in which being outside is good for us is that the light not only makes vitamin D in our skin, the light reaches the pineal gland in the brain and it tells you to wake up. It's the blue light component which tells the pineal gland, hey, it's daytime, wake up, do some work, do some partying. Now, if you're exposing yourself to that blue light at 10 o'clock at night, with a computer screen or a phone screen, it gives your brain the false message to wake up. And that's why some of our kids can't sleep and some of our kids are going crazy. Of course, there are other reasons as well. But this is such a hazard for teenagers. So be in the dark when it's dark. Be in the light when it's light. Yeah. I mean, it's it's madness, isn't it? Because uh, I also talk about this, this light picture so often because I think it's the missing puzzle piece for so many you know you see sort of wellness gurus talking about food and diet and supplements and all of this stuff and you actually forget that we have two food sources as humans we have the food that we eat and we have light just like plants you know that make energy from the sun we are exactly the same the mitochondria and all of our cells need that light stimulus and then you get on the other end of the spectrum I always think about you know medical studies that we read and we do like you and I will will do go away and and read the research but nine times out of ten they're always done in a lab under conditions of of unnatural light so can it ever be truly like that anyway just a really interesting they're missing out our most basic essential medicine which is sunlight yeah absolutely Thanks to ongoing research into the gut and its role in health and well-being, we now know that our gut microbiome plays a crucial role in the regulation of a healthy immune system, among many other things. Ki Kefir lives by the philosophy that food is medicine and so created the most authentic, traditional and above all nutritious kefir available on the market today. The probiotic powerhouse that is kefir is not quite a staple in everyone's fridge just yet, but two amazing producers from Sussex are trying to change that. Kefir is fermented milk that's naturally abundant in probiotic bacteria that supports and nourishes our microbiome. This in turn has a hugely positive knock-on effect for our systemic health. Key Kefir produce their kefir with the finest milk made from cows feeding on organic and regenerative pastures only. And this ensures the tastiest, most nutritionally dense probiotic that money can buy. 
Key are on a mission to create a drinks company that truly honors what it means to be healing to the planet and the people. These guys are the real deal. The packaging is also 100% recyclable and the kefir is bottled in glass bottles. To try Key Kefir's exceptional health drink, just go to their website and use the code SOM15, that's S for state of mind, all in capitals at the checkout to get 15% off your first order and start the journey to optimal health and support a company with a relentless passion for people and planet. Key Kefir's website is www.kikefir.com. Pronounced key, but spelt K-I. I hope that clears things up. Thank you so much to Key. So yeah. in the book, you have these case studies, which I think um, provide a lovely kind of a distraction, in a sense, from the, the more weightier um, information. And we get to see how you've applied this information in, in clinical practice. The, the case studies are fascinating, all of them. But do, do you have one or a few that really stand out for you as being very, very sort of, um, you know, this is why you need to all listen, because, you know, like a, like a real standout case study. It's interesting that you asked that question, and um, I'm just flicking through the book now. Yes, there is one that stands out. Now, the one that stands out most for me is one of the many that didn't make it into the book, partly for reasons of space, but partly because the publisher said, oh, that's too frightening. Oh, let's that's hear it, Jenny. Too frightening. No, because I'm saving it for the next book, and I will in a okay. minute go on to one of the ones that is in the book. But one of the ones that was too frightening for them was pesticide poisoning. Mm -hmm. And another one was about a mother who was exposed to, well, a woman who was exposed to extreme toxicity and then felt ill for many years. And then when she got pregnant, felt dramatically better. Yeah. And how when she told me this, I, you know, instead of saying, oh, how nice that you felt better in pregnancy, because I know that the placenta acts as a detox, I said to her, oh, how is the child of that pregnancy? Guess what? The child had had cancer and been very, very ill. Mm. Okay, we made the child better. But those hopefully will be in the next book. The case history I'm going to pick out from Staying Alive in Toxic Times is on page 234. And it's about a lady I called Sylvie, um, who was a relatively young woman. She was in her 50s, but she had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I'm picking that out is firstly, if you catch it early enough, you can treat it naturally and you can, you cannot cure it. You cannot get back the brain cells that have been lost, but you can prevent the progression and you can keep the rest of the brain in good condition. Um, and it should be noted that Alzheimer first described what he called pre-senile dementia in a woman of 51, okay, it's very important because if, you're, if your friend is in their 90s and they're forgetting your name and their next door neighbor's names and what they had for lunch, it's not really a problem, it's aging. Mm -hmm. But if they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s, it is an extreme problem. And one of the reasons for this case history was to counter the myth that the reason a million people in this country have dementia is because we're an aging population. Mm. And that is a myth for several reasons. Firstly, actually, the Victorians, on average, lived just as long as we did. 
The reason their average age of death was 40 is because the average takes into account child mortality. A quarter of all kids died before the age of five. So that brings down the average age of survival drastically. If you take that out of the equation, uh, and indeed, if you read Dickens or George Eliot or any 19th century novelist, you will know they lived well into their 80s and 90s and kept their marbles. So that's one myth busted. Uh, the most crucial myth, though, is that if dementia and indeed cancer are age related, then why are they increasing fastest among younger people? Why are we seeing cancer increasing faster in children than anyone else? And it's because the toxins that damage our brain and our bodies and our DNA um, are most damaging to children and indeed even more damaging to the fetus. Right. So all this pollution, the grandparent is least at risk and the baby in embryo is most at risk. And I, I think we have to face it because then we can do something about it. Um, and there is a certain crazy logic that says to us, which is what straight medicine is saying to us, Wonderful medical discoveries and improved hygiene have enabled us to live long enough to get all these terrible diseases. Mm. That's mm. twisted and it's not the story. So Sylvie um, was from West Africa. You've got you've to, of course, understand that I've changed all the identifying details. So that's not her real name. And I've changed crucial elements of her story. But let's say she's from West Africa and she'd been living in the northwest of England which has more cloud cover than any other part of the UK for 30 years. She was incredibly bright in her 50s and noticing that her memory was going to pieces. And she was a lawyer turning up at court with the wrong papers for the wrong client on the wrong day. So what did I find? I found the lowest level of vitamin D I had ever seen. If you're black and you live in the northwest of England and you don't take vitamin D supplements, that's what's going to happen because mm. there's not enough sunshine getting to your skin. And anyway, if you're working in a high powered intellectual job, you're indoors all day. And what, so, sorry, just because I'm interested, what was her vitamin D level? Okay, it should be, as you know, between 75 and 200 nanomoles per litre. It was 5.0. Oh. And the lab, wow. BioLab, said, well, can we have another sample, please? We're going to repeat this free of charge because in case it was a glitch. No, it wasn't a glitch. It came back 5.0. So obviously I gave her lots of vitamin D immediately. Um, but why was it so low? One, all the cloud cover in the northwest of England, which has the highest prevalence of heart disease in the UK. Secondly, she needed more sunshine than a white skinned person. Thirdly, she wasn't vegetarian and she wasn't vegan, but she hated fish. Mm. So she never ate fish. And that would have been her food source of vitamin D. Of course, the Eskimos, where there's no sun half the year, the, the Inuit people rather of the far north, they eat fish, they eat seal blubber, they eat whale meat. That's how they get their vitamin D in the winter. But there was a fourth reason her vitamin D was so low. She had been dieting on and off for 25 years, trying to lose weight, and she'd used low-fat diets. So a low-fat diet will deprive you of vitamin D. So that was one reason. She also had a very high level of aluminium in her urine, and we also did a MELISA test for heavy metals, and that showed up aluminium. Now, aluminium is strongly associated with Alzheimer's disease. It gets into the brain, and it causes the protein, the abnormal protein formation that we call neurofibrillary tangles. So what was the aluminium doing in there? 
because it belongs in the crust of the Earth's surface, doesn't belong in our bodies. First, she cooked in aluminium saucepans and she used a lot of, she made a lot of tomato sauce. So that's acid, as is lemon or rhubarb or any other fruit. So the acid would have leached the aluminium out into the food and she would leave it in the pan. She wouldn't then decant it into a ceramic dish to store in the fridge. Secondly, she used a lot of underarm deodorant. Mm -hmm. So that's aluminium and it's aluminium right next to the breast. So it's associated with breast cancer as well as with dementia. And there's a brilliant researcher at the University of Reading. I think her name is Philippa Darby, who's been looking at the links between aluminium and deodorant and breast cancer. She wrapped all sorts of food in aluminium foil. Now, if you just wrap sandwiches in aluminium foil, it's not a problem. But if you cook your Sunday roast in it and you squeeze lots of lemon juice on, again, you're leaching um, aluminium into the food. And fourthly, she'd had a hepatitis B jab and a few other vaccines all together to go back to Africa to see her family. She'd felt really bad afterwards, but because she was a lawyer, she said, I want to know what's in there. And she looked at the package insert and lo and behold, there was aluminium in every single jab. Right. So we've got the low vitamin D for four reasons. We've got the high aluminium for four reasons. And we've got three other contributing factors, right? Her brain was deprived of good fats from long-term dieting. She had excessive sugar consumption, which was damaging her brain as well. And lastly, there was the air pollution in the area where she lived, which is definitely a contributory factor to dementia as well. Mm. So the, the, the case history in the book goes on to tell how we worked with her over a period of a couple of years vast amounts of vitamin D, vast amounts of B vitamins and all the nutrients and herbs the body needs to detox all that junk. I gave her loads of silica because it gets rid of aluminium, loads of vitamin C for the same reason. And I got her against all her instincts eating low sugar, but high fat foods. So things like avocados and nuts and seeds and not cutting the fat off the meat, assuming it was organic, which it was. I gave her phosphatidylcholine, lots of vitamin B12, magnesium, all the B vitamins, fish oil capsules, alternating with evening primrose oil. Mm -hmm. And the reason you alternate the omega-3 and the omega-6 and don't give them together, even though there's some impressive combinations out there, is because it's the same enzyme that has to process both of them, the delta desaturase. Mm -hmm. And it needs a good level of zinc and it needs to work on one at a time. It can't do both at once. Basically, she was a brilliant patient. She did absolutely everything to the letter. And um, the neurologist had given her a diagnosis of early stage Alzheimer's. And a year later, all her nutrients were level, were, were at good levels. Aluminium was gone and she went back and had a scan. and. Not only had it not got worse, there was a very slight improvement. Okay, she's doing absolutely brilliantly now, right? She's not got perfect brain function, but it's no worse than it was when she came to see me. Mm. That is all we can hope for. But the reason I am saying that is we all need to do prevention. You know, yeah. We want to keep our marbles. We need to polish them. Yeah, amazing. So you, we touched there on, on kind of metal toxicity and aluminium and all of that. What would you say to the naysayers out there? Because I see this all the time, whether it's on social media or articles that have been written. Um, 
what would you say to people that still continue to say that non-organic fruit, veg, meat, etc., grains are no different, absolutely not a problem for okay. our health? So let's explain what organic food in uh, organic food is. It's just ordinary food. It's exactly the same kind of fruit, vegetables and meat that your great grandparents ate. Food grown in the earth and animals eating crops that have grown in the earth. That's all it is. It's it's food without artificial pesticides sprayed on it. It's animals that have not been dosed with antibiotics and it's animals that have not been injected with hormones. So that's all it is. It's not weird and wonderful. It's simply food that hasn't been subjected to all those chemicals that don't belong in the body of the plant or the animal or the human. Now, we should think about what these pesticides are that are being sprayed on all our crops if they're not organic. They began as nerve gases, right? What people were gassed with in the trenches in the First World War over 100 years ago, that's where they began. And they damaged the nervous system and they still damage the nervous system. I have seen many very sick farmers who could only get better when they stopped using those things and we got them out of their system. Now, there is a question about why it's so expensive. It damn well shouldn't be. And this is a political issue. And write to your MP, why isn't the government subsidising the organic farmers who are good for everybody's health? And interestingly, they did a study in Denmark, sperm counts they compared between male farmers who were organic and those who were not. And the difference was astounding, right? much, much better sperm counts in the organic farmers and really quite bad ones in the non-organic farmers, subfertile. Mm. So um, it is a political thing that the government needs to be subsidising the little family farms that do everything organic and regeneratively and not subsidising the big so-called farms which have carpeted our country with these flat monocrops. So you see acres of the same crop and no weeds and no wildflowers. That's dead earth. That's mm. profit. That's agri-chemical business. That's not proper farming, right? Now, it, it's, you know, it's difficult for the individual, but I would say here's a way of being able to afford organic food. Firstly, if you're vegetarian, you're not eating the meat anyway, but if you are eating meat, which I do, and you want to make it organic, then get an organic chicken once a week instead of horrible, crappy, poisoned, battery-farmed, cruelty-reared chicken three times a week. Mm. You'll actually be spending less because we don't need very much, but we need it to be top quality, free range and organic. Yeah. And the last thing, and I do make this point in my book, is that in the 1950s, we spent 33%, a third of our income on food. Now we spend about 5 to 8%. We expect it to be incredibly cheap. It shouldn't be cheap. It should be a major expenditure. Yeah. I have a, a neighbor who says to me, how can you afford all that organic food? And then she goes off to Barbados, which I couldn't afford to do mm. because it's how we prioritize. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I've got two questions to round up, Jenny, um, which hopefully are going to leave us on really nice, positive notes. Um, the first is that yes I'm very interested in this idea this kind of comparison between environmental toxicity and toxic thought patterns because obviously 
the book provides a lot of information on treatment options and practical tips to deal with with the threats that are posed in each chapter. But I often hear from from people on social media or um, clients of mine that this is all such a scary space. And I think it is. And you and I are coming from it a very different perspective to um to others and it can be incredibly overwhelming and we can have really quite negative kind of impacts on our mental health when we start to consider just how much toxicity for example is inside our home before we've even left the house so what are your thoughts around this idea of environmental toxicity and and the importance of dealing with that versus actually just staying sane and, and happy I mean, I think you're absolutely right about getting the balance. And that's why I start chapter seven, which is called Tox Detox, Can't Poison the Planet Without Poisoning the People. I start it with a page of what's positive and the fact that, yeah, you are going to hear some scary stuff that we would all prefer not to know about what we're breathing and drinking and inhaling and eating, but not without answers. There is stuff we can do about absolutely all of this. And I also wouldn't be able to face the extent of the problem if I didn't know that there were solutions. Mm -hmm. But where I'm coming from is I've spent 22 years seeing people get better. And I've seen eating organic be transformative. And I've seen doing the very simple detox protocols that I describe in chapter seven being transformative. And I've seen people making the lifestyle changes slowly and gradually, you know, Mm. and you do not have to do this all at once because every little thing you do will make a difference. And I always say to people, the first step in this journey is to take courage and to know that loads of people have got very much better by making relatively simple changes one at a time in their lives, in their eating and so on. But the next step is to buy a magnifying glass. That's all. Hold your nerve. Don't change your diet. Don't throw anything out of your bathroom or kitchen. Just buy a magnifying glass. And for a month, read the ingredients on everything that you spray on your body, on your table, on your floor, on your bath. Mm -hmm. Just read it and look up those ingredients. That's all. Yeah. And at the end of doing that, you will be so willing and able to make the necessary changes, right? You'll read the ingredients list and you'll buy the shampoo that really is just made of herbs and that isn't full of sodium lauryl sulfate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an easy change to make. And you will change your toothpaste from one that's full of fluoride, which damages the brain and the bone and the thyroid and the ovaries, Um to one that hasn't got toothpaste, that hasn't got um, fluoride in the toothpaste. And you can get that from your local health food shop. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't advise anyone to make more than two or three changes a week because then you will overwhelm yourself. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the more we take courage to face what we're up against, the more we can end up with a much more positive mindset because you're doing something about it. And in terms of mental health, very important to remember that the the degree of depression and anxiety and serious mental illnesses we have now, especially among the young, are not only due to the dreadful circumstances we've been living in for 18 months, they're also due to vitamin D deficiency, deficiency of B12 and the other B vitamins, mineral deficiency, sunlight deficiency, mm-hmm. sleep deficit. You know, there are loads of physical reasons 
for serious mental health problems. And when I see an old lady with dementia and when I see a young man with depression, they are the ones that have the vitamin D levels in their boots. Mm -hmm. So simple things like sunshine, exercise, being barefoot on the grass. can I have seen them again and again make an enormous difference to the health of my patients, my colleagues, my friends and myself so there are reasons to be cheerful yeah well the second question I was going to ask you you've just answered for me with that really uplifting and positive answer so I think I'll leave it there for today unless you have any other last words of wisdom that you want the listeners to know um, and also do tell us where people can find you and find out more about all of this okay thank you so the website is just drjennygoodman.com that's mm-hmm. dr jenny with a y drjennygoodman.com. The book is called Staying Alive in Toxic Times, subtitle A Seasonal Guide to Lifelong Health. It's published by Yellow Kite, which are an imprint of Hodder, Hodder and Stoughton. You can, of course, get it on Amazon, but it would be much nicer if you got it from any local independent bookshop or even from Waterstones. And I believe on my website, when you go to the bit about the book, there are links directly through to retailers that sell it. So you can buy it online, but it's nice if you go into your bookshop locally and say, have you got this book? And if not, why not? And order it. And you're on Instagram too, aren't you, Jenny? Uh, yes, kind it of. I am. It kind of. I am. It's not my natural media, but yes, and that's because um, the book came out originally January 2020, six weeks before everything locked down, and the paperback was brought out early March when the bookshops were still shut, despite my pleading with them to wait for the bookshops to open. So there right. you go. Um, people have said to me that they've learned a lot from it, and. And, you know, started to make simple, effective changes in their life. Great. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I think this episode is going to be one hell of a listen for everyone. So, yeah, thank it's you so much. It's a pleasure, Grace. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of State of Mind. If you haven't already headed on over to the Apple Podcast app and left a five-star review, I would massively appreciate it. And do share the podcast to your Instagram stories to help me spread the word. Thanks once again to Key Kefir for sponsoring this episode. And don't forget code SOM15, all in capitals, for 15% off your first Kefir delivery. I'll be back next week with another episode. Bye-bye.